Good evening. Before we get started, I want to say that I truly do appreciate the uh, kind words from Brother Elihu, but I want you to know that the privilege and the blessing has been all Karen's and mine. We appreciate so much the fellowship, um, the food yesterday. Um, we know what it takes to put together a meeting like this. We know what it takes to put all of that time and effort and planning and work and energy into something like this. And for Karen and I to be able to travel over here and to share in the sweet fellowship that we have enjoyed and continue to enjoy, the blessing has been ours. And we are especially mindful of the fact that there's a lot of lives here right now that are being touched by very difficult circumstances and hence the topic and the title of this gospel meeting it was designed to give you encouragement from God's word and to truly let us take another look at all of those things that God has done for us and so many other good things and so tonight I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles and really don't just trust me look in your Bibles see what God said note the passages Note the comfort and the hope that is there. Nothing I say is of any value. What God said means everything. And so only when I say what he said, need you listen to me. Um, it was a little over four years ago. Brother Larry was working over in Oklahoma. And he was coming to services at the Cleveland congregation where I am privileged to preach the gospel. And it was actually Sunday, March the 16th of 2014. The third month, 16th day, that I started a little two-part sermon mini-series on 316. I thought it was appropriate, right? 316, 2014. And uh, when I come over last year, um, Brother Black said he'd really like to hear those two lessons again. And they worked out really well with this particular topic of God's love and grace by the numbers. We are going to talk about the number tonight, 316. We are going to talk about the power of of 316. And obviously we're going to begin with probably the most popular 316 passage in the entire Bible. Please turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 3 and verse 16. This is the one, whenever you say 316, this one, everybody automatically... How many of you, when I said 316, thought of John 316? Raise your hand. Come on now. Is there anybody that thought of a different 316 passage? Raise your hand. Exactly. This is the one everybody thinks of. And it's a beautiful passage. It's a passage that has been abused by some. And I want us to look at it tonight maybe in a little different way than we have before. A lot of these 316 passages are in the heart or the middle of a particular text that I will read. They're not necessarily always the part of it that I want to focus on, but they always are right in the heart of the passages. And so tonight I want to read verses 14 through 17. Jesus said in John 3, 14 through 17, as Moses was, as, let me start over. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Four, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
Now we get into all kinds of discussions and really I think sometimes miss the point of this passage. We get in all kinds of discussions with some of our denominational friends who say, look, that's all you got to do is believe. By the way, I've never understood that. They'll say John 3.16 says all you got to do is believe and then they want you to say a prayer. Think about that. They want you to do something besides just simply believe. And we talk about those versions of the Bible that say, like the New International Version, that anyone who believes in him shall not perish. There's no possibility they can perish. Well, we know that's not true because of James 2 and 19 and so on. But what I want us to see tonight is something more than that. I want us to understand the context here, and especially verse 17. God had every right to condemn the world. God had every right to say, you know what? Mission failed, that's it, over. You guys, you've sinned. God had, but God, even after all those years of sending his prophets, after all those years of sending his messengers, Jesus would talk about this later on in his ministry, after all those years and years and years of God begging and pleading, and then 400 years or so of silence between the Testaments, what does God do? God is so awesome. God is so good. God loves you and me so much. Knowing all of our sins, knowing everything we were going to do, knowing all of our weaknesses and our frailties, what did God do? He sent His Son to save the world. Isn't God awesome? That's what we sometimes miss with this. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels that night, but He says, how then would the Scripture be fulfilled? He had the power to do that. But he didn't come here to condemn us. He came to save us. He came because we needed a Savior. He came because we had sinned. And, and God knows what eternity in hell consists of. And he couldn't stand that. And so as we talked about yesterday, it pleased God, Isaiah 53 and verse 10. It pleased God to put his own son to death for you and me. He sent his son to save the world. And, and there's a beautiful power in that passage. But here's the question. Have you ever stopped to consider the sheer beauty and power in the other 316 passages? There are many other 316 passages that are powerful and, and pivotal and they point to the providence of God in incredible ways and, and how he loves and cares for us all the time. And so tonight, we're going to take a look at some of the 316 power passages from the Old Testament and then tomorrow night we'll look at some from the New Testament. And there's a lot more than you might think. Not all 66 books have that, but there's a lot of them that do. I want to begin tonight by turning back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, and we're going right up through, right in order, so it'll be kind of easy to follow along tonight. I want to begin with the 316 power passage contained in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, 14 through 19, we see the awesome promise of God, the very first promise that he's going to send the Messiah, or the hint that he's going to send the Messiah to overcome the terrible consequences of sin. Genesis 3 begins in verse 9 this way. After Adam and Eve had sinned, it says, Then the Lord called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? <laughs> then the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave to me of the tree, and I it's always it's always somebody else's fault, right? It's the woman's fault. And the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this you have done? And the woman said, it's the serpent's fault. You know, you get to the end of the line, the serpent's got nobody to point to. Okay? Which is fitting, because it was his fault, but still. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He'll bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he gave pain in childbirth. Verse 16. To the man, he said, Because you have done this thing, which I commanded you not to, cursed is the ground, etc., etc. Verse 18. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. You'll eat the herbs of the field, and in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And you read that, and you say, Douglas, what is the hope in that passage? It looks pretty glorious me. The hope in that passage is this. Despite all the sin, despite that sin, despite all the consequences of that sin, God didn't give up on people. God said right there, he said, hey, yeah, you messed up. Yeah, there's going to be some problems here because of it. But I want you to know that I have a plan. I'm not going to desert you. I have a plan. And I'm going to give you a hint about that plan right now. Remember we talked yesterday in the sermon how God had a plan in place before the very foundation of the world, before he created the world itself. Because he knew man was going to fall, he already had a plan in place to redeem man. Ephesians 1, 4 and Ephesians 3, 8 through 12. There's a promise there. The promise is this. In the midst of your darkness, you need to trust God's promise. Because God's promise is there. In Exodus chapter 3, if you'd go along to Exodus chapter 3, Moses receives his calling from God to become the Old Testament forerunner of the Messiah. We know the story pretty well. I wanted to read just a little bit from another 316 power passage. Exodus 3 beginning at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What's his name? What will I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Do, you, do we understand the message there? God is saying, I'm always there. I am. When this was written, he says, I am. Thousand years later, he says, I am. Today, God is. God is always there. That's the point God is making. He is eternal. He is above our realm. He is always present. He's always alive. He's always there. I am. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generation. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, watch this, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. God sees your pain. Don't miss that point. God sees and knows your struggle. Now stop thinking, well, there's six billion people out there. God sees your pain. 
I have surely visited you and I've seen what is done. And God then says, and I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. God said, I've seen the struggle. I know the struggle, but I will bring you through it. And I will bring you to a much better place. Just trust me. Did God keep his promise? Did God bring them up and bring them out? Can God be trusted when he says, I know your struggle, but you trust me and I will bring you into a much better place. That's a powerful passage. That's a 316 power passage. The Bible is full of them. Hopefully the next time somebody says to you 316, say, do you know how many of those are really great? It's not just John. <laughs> you know, we often recall and remember in awe what God did in providing for Moses and the Israelites to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. We go, wow, that's and it is powerful. But you know the story of Joshua and the Israelites crossing the Jordan on dry ground is no less impressive. Guess where it's located? In a 316 power passage. Turn to me to Joshua 3. Joshua 3. Look at verse 14. Joshua chapter 3, verse 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside of Zaraton. So the waters that went down into the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Why don't you think about that? How many songs do we sing today about crossing over Jordan? Quite a number, right? We always talk about, we never sing a song about crossing over the Red Sea. The songs are always about crossing over the Jordan, and yet what gets all of our attention when we talk about walking on dry ground? Red Sea. We sing these songs about crossing over Jordan. See, I want you to think about this. We know that a lot of things in the Old Testament were symbolic of what was going to take place on a greater level in the New Testament. We understand that. The people got in the ark, they, because they got in the ark by faith, they were saved by the water. 1 Peter chapter 3, and that represents baptism that, would, that saves us as we are saved through water, through the water separating us from the sins of the world. What I want us to understand here with this passage is this. Symbolically speaking, when we talk about crossing through the Red Sea, that is symbolic of baptism. We talk about how they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. Paul tells us in, in the Corinthian epistle, okay? Symbolically speaking, when they crossed the Red Sea, that's like baptism. Because what did they enter after they crossed the Red Sea? They entered the wilderness of sin. 
And they struggled for 40 years. That's like our baptism. We, we cross over, as it were. We are baptized. And then we have to kind of struggle through the desert of sin, as it was. But what are we talking about when we talk about crossing over the Jordan? We're talking about entering the promised land. So we don't sing songs about crossing the Red Sea. We don't sing songs about a baptism. We sing about crossing over Jordan, making that cross from here to our heavenly promised land. And you see, that's the beauty of this passage. Notice that in verse 17, all of the people crossed completely over. When I read that, I think of Hebrews 7 and verse 25, where it says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is able to save completely. Those, is Jesus able to completely deliver us home to heaven? Yes, just like Joshua here and all these people completely crossed over physical Jordan. 3.16 also marks the heart of another very powerful and quite sobering passage in the book of Samuel. Please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is very sobering, very powerful. 1 Samuel chapter 3, another 316 power passage. Begin at verse 10 and follow along, would you please? Calling of Samuel, 1 Samuel 3, verse 10. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. God said, I'm going to bring some bad things down on Eli and here's why. God says, And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That's very stern. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And watch Eli's reaction. He said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. Eli said, He's God. Let him do what he thinks is right. I trust God to be God. I'm going to let God be God. Psalm 46 and verse 10, God says, Be still and know that I am God. It's a lot like Job. When Job said, Shall we not accept good from the Lord? Or shall we not accept adversity from the Lord as well as good? And in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 2 and verse 10. What's he saying? I'm going to let God be God. Sometimes we need to just let God be God and know who He is. Don't have time to go into all of them because there's a lot of good ones, but we'll cover most of them. This one I'll just let you know about. In 1 Kings chapter 3, 
we see Solomon's beautiful prayer for wisdom answered by God. Solomon, this young king, prays for wisdom that he might be able to lead God's people. God answers his prayer. And then in that pivotal verse 16, 1 Kings 3, verse 16, we see God immediately gives Solomon an opportunity to use that wisdom in the case of two harlots that had this dispute over a baby. Here's the key I want to bring out there with that power passage of 3.16. When you come to Bible study, you come to a gospel meeting, you come to worship services, and God's word goes out and you take it into your heart, God will provide you with the opportunity to exercise that which you have learned at some point not too far down the road. Have you ever been have you ever been to a Bible class or something and within, you know, the next week or 10 days or 2 weeks you say you, you encounter this situation say wait a minute, wait a minute. The teacher just taught about this. I know what I'm supposed to do. And that ever happened to anybody besides me? A few. God will give you God's not just giving us all this wisdom so we can just store it up and not do anything with it. He's going to give us an opportunity to use it to trust him. In 2 Kings chapter 3 and I will ask you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. In 2 Kings chapter 3, the Moabites are rebelling. They are rebelling against Jehoram. Jehoram was an evil king. He was the son of Ahab. He was an evil king, Jehoram. The Moabites are rebelling against him. And even when he, Jehoram, goes and, and has the help of a good king, King Jehoshaphat of Judah and the king of Edom, Eden, Edom, I can say that word, too much good food tonight. Eat them. <laughs> the three of them find themselves in some dire straits. Second Kings chapter 3. Follow along from verse 9 with me, would you please? Second Kings 3, 9. I was talking while you were turning, so it's going to take me a minute to get there. Alright. Second Kings 3, 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. They marched on the roundabout route seven days. There was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. He's, ready, he's, he's thinking it's all over. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, he says to this evil king, he says, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Why don't you go to the prophets of Baal that Ahab and Jezebel, your parents, worshipped? Why don't you deal with them? But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. He said, If you didn't have this man here who respects God, this good king, he said, I wouldn't even listen to you. He said, But, seeing how he's here, verse 15, Bring me a musician. And it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came on him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. Now keep in mind, there's no water. There's no water for their animals. No water for them. I mean, there's just no water to be had. Make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you'll not see wind. 
Not going to be a breeze blowing. You're not going to know the storm coming. Nor shall you see rain. Yet that valley will be filled with water so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. Brethren, what we need to understand is this. When we are walking through a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, when we are walking through a hard situation where it seems like there's no way out, it seems like this is it, it's over, it doesn't seem to be working, there's nothing here, it is not but a small matter for the Lord to see you through that, to provide in that dark valley. Do you see that? The prophet said, this is a small matter for the Lord. This, the Lord's got this. He's got this. This is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. And, and then I love it. It's like, oh yeah, and to show you how easy that is, let me show you. He's going to take it a level higher. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And if we were to go over and read verses 26 and 7, it would tell us that God did exactly that. As we look through our Bibles... Some of these passages with 316 at the heart are some of the most encouraging, the most faith-building passages that we will read. We have others. Anybody in this room that at times just feels as though, you know what, I, I just don't know what it's going to take to make me happy. You know, I, I, just, I, I just cannot seem to find the joy I should have and all of that sort of thing. And some days we go through that and some days are month-long days. <laughs> You know, the Bible in a 316 power passage tells us how to be happy. It does. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs, and we will see the providential power of godly wisdom to provide that otherwise elusive presence of personal happiness. Proverbs chapter 3. knew somebody not too long ago, a sister in Christ, spoke to me that was having a rough time of things. And she said, just went to my Bible, picked it up and started reading. Just needed, needed something. Just have one of those days you just need something. And she says, just, just went to my Bible and picked it up and started reading. And you know, it wasn't too long reading about God's providence, that I began to, to have my spirits lifted. Not her exact words, but close. What I want for us to understand is, is that that's exactly what the Scripture says. Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 13. By the way, was the Bible true when it was written? Yes. Thank you. I would have taken that from everybody in the room altogether. Let's try it again. <laughs> That's fine. As I tell them in Cleveland, this means yes, this means no. Let's try it again. Was the Bible true when it was written? Yes. Thank you. Is the Bible still true today? Yes. Is every word of it true? Yes. Even if it's hard for us to understand? Yes. You guys are good. You fast learners over here in Oak Ridge. I like that. What I'm about to read to you is still true today. Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. And it's not just a one-time thing. This is talking about continually seeking the Lord in His Word. It's finding godly wisdom in a, on an ongoing basis. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. When he, when he perceives what's going on and he understands that he can better deal with it. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. 
You know, there's a couple of point guards in the NBA that this last year signed contracts for five years. The total of those contracts for both of these point guards was over $200 million for five years. They're making 40 million dollars a year. If they only played the regular season 82 games, that means when they step on that floor at night, they're making a half a million dollars for that night's effort. Do any of you in this room have 200 million in your wallet tonight? Do you even know what it looks like? <laughs> Larry's reaching for his wallet. You're a good man. <laughs> I cannot begin to fathom 200 million dollars. Even over four years, five years, five years, sorry, don't want to cheat anybody. But this says right here in my Bible that the man who finds godly wisdom and who gains understanding from God, the benefits of that are better than silver and better than fine gold. It's better than their contract. Do you see that? Don't miss that. She, that is godly wisdom and understanding, especially when, when we're in a hard time, godly wisdom and understanding is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire can't compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Is the Bible still true? Yes. Verse 13 and verse 18 tell us that happiness is there for the taking if we will grab onto godly wisdom and get godly understanding. That that is worth more than anything else in the world. How much time and effort and energy and money is spent on a daily basis in this country in the pursuit of happiness? A lot. Bazillions is one of my favorite terms. People spending bazillions of dollars having all kinds of, of surgeries and buying all kinds of cosmetics and buying all kinds of alcohol and drugs and, and, and gambling. And they're doing all these things and they're just trying, they're pursuing happiness, but it's like trying to nail jello to the ceiling. It's like trying to hold the wind. They can't get. God told us where happiness was to be found, did He not? They want to send out, a few years ago, they want to send out this space probe and they're going to try to discover the origins of the universe. And they're going to spend bazillions of dollars on this thing and they're going to shoot it off into space, and they did, trying to find the origins of the universe. People, for $7.95 in most bookstores, you could buy those people at NASA a Bible and point them to Genesis 1-1 and they'd know the origin of the universe. It's not that difficult. We need to understand that happiness is not something that is purchased through bazillions of dollars pursuing what man says will make us happy. God in a 316 power passage, and yes, I realize that when God had it written, it was not broken up into, into chapters and verses. I understand that. But in this section that we refer to, it tells us how to be happy, does it not? That is a powerful passage. But it doesn't end there. Turn to me to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. I want to begin at verse 11. Jeremiah 3 verse 11. 
Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful says the Lord. I'll not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you've transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree and that you've not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I married you. I'll take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I'll give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass... When you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. You're not even going to remember some of these struggles of the past. God says, if you just come to me, I will take care of you. I'll provide for you. I will give you everything. Just return to me. I love you so much. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they'll come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance. You know what God's telling them there? He said, look, I made you a promise. And I know you've messed up. I know that you're backslidden. I, I know. But I love you. If you just, just come back and listen to me, God says, I'm going to keep my promise to you if you do that. God is faithful. Aren't we glad God is faithful? One of my all-time favorites of the Old Testament 316s is in Daniel. And I know probably for those of you that were raised in the church that you probably heard these stories out of Daniel from the time you could get out of the little little baby's class. But that's okay. Because it's powerful stuff. And it's another one of those 316 passages. In Daniel chapter 3, 1 through 12, we know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar, all full of himself and pride and ego and all this, builds this big golden statue and he wants everybody to fall down and worship it. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not going to do that. We understand that. Okay? So, over here, on my next page, Nebuchadnezzar finds out that they're not going to bow down. Watch this. Daniel 3.13 Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the harp and the lyre and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image I have made, good. But if you do not worship... You shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who's the God that will deliver you from my hands? How dare you? Now, I don't have time to go into the whole story. I wish I did. It's a sermon in itself. But you have to understand here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know the power of this king. He has invaded their homeland. He has destroyed their city. He has taken some of the young men captives. He has butchered families. Probably, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were all made eunuchs when they arrived there. As I say, it's a different sermon. They know the power of this guy. They know that he has the power to do what he said. It's not like, well, you know, he really can't do that. I mean, who does he think he is? It, he could do it. 
As surely as I can stand here and close my Bible, he could have their heads taken off. He could, I mean, this was real. This was for real. This wasn't some, some false threat that he was making. Understand that. Sometimes we're faced with what seems like all-powerful and impossible odds. You know, the doctor says, or this happens, or that, and it looks like, man, it just, I can't, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew what they were going to do. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve... Right there. I, I, stop for a minute. Man, I just want to keep going here. Stop for a minute. Our God whom we serve, think about what they've been through. They've seen their homeland invaded, destroyed, and they've been taken captive. Now, a lot of people in the church today, when they go through a hard time, they kind of say, well, you know, God didn't take care of things for me, so I'm just going to kind of give up. There is no God. These guys still served God even after everything they had been through. The God whom we serve is able to deliver us. How did they get that faith? He didn't deliver them before. I mean, he delivered them from death, but they're captives living in a strange land. Everything hasn't gone their way exactly, but look at their faith. Look at their faith. Our God, whom they still served, they knew was able to deliver them from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But, if not, you know what? But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, will you not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you set up? Even if God, I've got this, this thing that I've got to get past, I've got to get through, it's a life or death thing, and I believe that God will deliver me from it. But you know what? Even if, I know he's able, but even if he doesn't, you know what? I'm serving God. Because I still know who God is. If God chooses not to deliver me, I still trust Him because I know He's God. Do we need that message today? Amen. I know He's able. I know He can do it. And I believe He's going to do it. But you know what? Even if He don't do it, I'm still serving God. Because I know this God who gave His Son for me. And I know what's waiting for me. And I ain't stopping. I ain't stopping. What a powerful passage. And I would be remiss, of course, if I were not to mention verses 27 through 29. We know that they're cast into the fiery furnace. We know that they're pulled out of the fiery furnace. And we know that when they were pulled up, verses 27 through 29, they didn't even have the smell of the fire on them. The, the, the big, strong guards, the, the cream of the crop, you know, they took them up and cast them in. The fire was hot that these guys died just dumping them in. But they come out of that fire and they didn't even have the smell on them. And King Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 29, spoke, saying, Blessed, I'm sorry, verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. They were not going to worship any god no matter what their god did or did not do for them because they still trusted him. Trust has its rewards, people. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be cut in pieces. Their houses will be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Listen, when we get through the fire and we trust God no matter what, it makes an impression on the people around us. 
Those people around us that don't have God and don't know God and don't have that peace and that comfort and that strength in their lives, when we go through the fire and we trust God and we come out on the other end of that fire still hanging on to our God, do you know what that says to people? They got something real. There's no other God that can do what their God can do. We talk about in the church today, why don't, you know, why don't our evangelistic efforts work better? You know what the greatest evangelistic effort you can make is? Live your faith even in the darkest of times. Show people you trust God no matter what. There is no greater evangelism in the church. And I'm afraid that's where we failed in some areas today. But I don't have time. I need to move on. <laughs> Turn to me to the book of Habakkuk. Or Habakkuk. I don't know how this man's name was pronounced. I know there's probably Hebrew scholars who could tell us, but it seems like every area of the country that you move to, and we've moved to more than one, they pronounce it differently. There's a language barrier we found. Believe it or not, moving from Maine to Oklahoma, there's a language barrier. Um, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, whatever his name is. What I want you to see from here is in chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. There's a great day of wrath and judgment of God that is coming. And I want you to look with me at the response to it. Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3, 16 through 19. He says, When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Now watch this. There's going to be this terrible day coming. And this is what Habakkuk says. He says, verse 17. In that terrible day, verse 16, verse 17, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd, and that we may be starving to death, yet I will rejoice. In the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk in my high hills. He said, it doesn't matter. Things don't work out. If, if it's a time of leanness and hunger, it does not matter what comes. I will rejoice in the Lord. Sounds sort of like something Paul would write, doesn't it? I want to take you to just a couple of others. Turn to me to the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, which is the very next book. I'm trying to go too far here. Chapter 3. Hey, guess what? It's in chapter 3. <laughs> it's another 316 power passage. Zephaniah 3, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Do we understand when we come together on Sundays, the Lord is with us? We're in the presence of God. We're not just in church. I, by the way, I don't go to church. I go to worship. Worship is a verb. Church is a place. I go to worship God. And God is in that place. And God has promised to live in those who would accept His grace on His terms. I am a child of the living God. 
Romans 8. God is with us. His point here is that God is with them. But God is with us as New Testament Christians on an even greater level, as it were, than he was with them. And yet he rejoiced because he said that God was in their midst. Verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Let your not your hands be weak. The Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will will rejoice over you with singing. I don't want you to miss in this passage right here. Look at verse 17 again. We talk about how we come to worship to sing and rejoice, right? Sing and be happy, rejoice in the Lord. We don't often think of the fact that God rejoices over his people. We don't often get this picture in our mind of God singing and rejoicing over us. That's not a common th What does the text say? He will rejoice over you, verse 17, with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that awesome? That God sings and rejoices over his children that trust him. That's amazing to me. Do you love your kids? How come when I ask that it's so quiet? <laughs> of course you do. When your kids do something spectacular, they even if it's only spectacular to them, if they are little and they, you know, color a picture and it's all outside the lines, you have no idea what it is. You have a little child, have one of your children or grandchildren bring you this picture, and they're just bubbling. Man, they're walking on air, and they're coming to you, and they lay this thing down, and you haven't got a clue what it is. Say, well, that's you, Grandpa. Oh, yeah. No, see, that's you right there. Oh, yeah. Cool. I'm going to put this on my wall. i got more artwork on the wall in the office. They've gotten older, so you can actually tell what it is now. But you rejoice over your kids and your grandkids, right? God says, I rejoice over you. I am so... I just want to sing over my children. I'm with you. I'm in your midst. Don't miss that. Malachi chapter 3 as well. Actually, I think I'm down to about four pictures on my wall in the office from the grandchildren at this point. Just, just a note to be accurate. Malachi 3.16. God has talked about how he's coming in wrath and judgment. Malachi 3, verse 16 and following says this. Then those who feared the Lord, that should be folks like you and me, spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. Listen, when we fear the Lord, when we trust Him, and when we listen to Him, God listens to us. So a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on His name. How does God feel about those who take the time to come? And I know some of you have had awful day, an awful day. I know you've traveled, you've been busy, you've been right out straight. I, I, I know you have. But what I want you to see particularly in this passage is this. You came tonight to study God's Word. You came tonight to meditate on the promises of God, despite the busyness of your day. How does God feel about those who fear Him and who meditate on His name? Verse 16, here's how He feels about that. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, verse 17, on the day that I make them my jewels, literally the day that I make them my special treasure, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. 
Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. Moving on just a little bit into chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. The day which is coming will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. But, verse 2 of chapter 4, to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Do you need your heart healed tonight? God says, I, I'll do that. And you'll go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this. Now, obviously, that's a prophecy looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. I understand that. But this is the same God. God is the same all the time. Malachi 3 and verse 16. Tomorrow night, we're going to look at some of these 316 power passages from the New Testament. And believe it or not, there's even more in the New Testament than here. I do have a sheet. See, I held it back. I didn't give it to you tonight. See, I got a sheet with a whole list on it. <laughs> so, actually, if you can't be here tomorrow night, I think... Actually, I don't know if I have it or not. We'll make sure you get one if you request one. We'll put it that way. But I did hold back one 316 passage for our invitation. Turn with me back to the book of Joel. Joel. I did save this one for the invitation. Joel chapter 3, obviously. Verses 16 and 17. Again, a prophetic scripture pointing to the coming of the Messiah, the establishment of his kingdom. It says in Joel 3 and verse 16, The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Verse 17 of Joel 3, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion my holy mountain, and then Jerusalem will be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. As I read that passage, I am reminded of the description of that holy city out of Revelation, how nothing unclean, no abomination, or any of those things will ever enter into that holy city. <clears throat> As I read that passage, I also see in verse 16 that God wants to be a shelter for His people. God wants to take care of us. God wants us to be His children. God wants to gather us up. The only thing that God can't do for us, He sent His Son, He's given us the plan, He's given us the Word. The only thing that He cannot do is make that decision for us. We have a free will. Two things tonight as we close. If you are here and you have never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you really need to consider that. The only peace that you are going to find that will last in this world or any happiness that you're going to find that will last in this world and carry you through to the next one is in Christ, knowing where you're going no matter what. God wants to give you that strength, that comfort. He wants to make you His child. He wants to forgive all your sins, but it's up to you. If you're somebody here tonight who's done that, it might have been years ago, it might have been decades ago, but you've really been struggling. Your heart's heavy, your struggles are overwhelming, and you just need the prayers of the church. The Bible tells us that the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We can pray for you, we can hold you, we can love you, we can help you, we can Bible study with you. God has given way too much for you 
for you to leave this building tonight hurting. If there's any way whatsoever that we can be... Don't let this just be an invitation where we sing the song and we're done. If you hurt, you don't need to. God doesn't want you to. If you have a need, please come forward this night. As we stand and sing this song, please come forward.